This looks like Japanese I-boats on the West Coast, German U-boats on the East Coast. They're going after our supply lines, but we know the Japanese never quite see it that way. They put their submarines out in front of the fleet, very effective off Guadalcanal, for example, hitting the Saratoga, sinking Wasp, hitting the Chester, sinking Juno. I mean, they're sinking ships left and right. They're very effective Japanese submarines but they're not thinking strategically, which again is hard to fathom because the entire purpose of the war is strategic for Japan for resources. Absolutely. And for Japan, they do manage to capture all these resources, right? They do go capture almost effortlessly. And this just brilliant six month long offensive before Midway, just probably the single best military offensive, certainly of World War II, but possibly ever in terms of a naval offensive. It just runs perfectly without literally without loss they lose zero ships and they capture all of the western pacific from the dutch from the united states from the british from the french from the australians it was just utterly brilliant but then they have no plan whatsoever to defend their own supply lines which was the whole point was to get the supplies they have no plan to defend that against the united states and we absolutely destroy their merchant fleet to the point where it seriously impacts their ability to wage war. And as the war goes on, we starve them to death. Welcome to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. And with me is Sal Mercogliano, who is the Associate Professor of History and the Chair at Campbell University, and additionally, the host of What's Going On With Shipping, a absolutely amazing resource. And we're going to be talking today about World War II fuel logistics. Thanks, Sal. Thanks for having me, Chase. Appreciate it. All right. So I guess the best place to start would be uh, Pearl Harbor, and it is the end of 1941, and the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, and they make what, well, in retrospect, is a fairly controversial decision not to attack the fuel tanks that support the American Pacific Fleet, and that is basically the third wave concept. And in the movie Tora Tora Tora, right, it's this big dramatic showdown where the aviators are landing from the second wave, and they're like, "Why aren't we launching? Why aren't we launching?" But yeah, you know, there were some good reasons that they didn't, right? Right. I mean, so there's no evidence at all. And I've had this conversation with John Parshall and everyone who's really investigated this, that the Japanese had no plans for a third wave. I mean, that's pretty much they were going to launch the two waves. And remember, the two waves were the entire deck loads of the six carriers. They just staggered them off. So what you're talking about is having to land the first wave back on board, rearm, re-equip them and then send them back out again to go strike at what was going to be the Navy Yard, the repair facilities, the dry docks and the oil reserves. And, you know, oil is an interesting topic for the Japanese because if you look at the strategic cause of World War II in Asia, it's fuel. It, Japan has been cut off from the embargo by the United States, Britain, and the Netherlands. And their entire thrust of their offensive is to get to the Dutch East Indies and grab the oil. To get to Pearl Harbor, they have to drag eight oilers with them because they don't have the range because it's a ridiculously far sail from it, northern Japan to Hawaii. Everyone doesn't realize how long right. that is. You're talking over 4,000 miles. It's and twice so the as far Jap from Japan to Pearl Harbor as it is from California to Pearl Harbor. Right. And so Japan has got to fuel up the Kido Butai with all these oilers. But then when you get to the tactical application where you're using your aircraft off the Kido Butai to launch strike, they're looking at ships, they're looking at infrastructure, but they're not looking at logistics. And so those oil farm, which has 4 million barrels of fuel, this is really, is, is taking a long time for the Americans to build up that fuel reserve. 
Because when the Americans first go to Hawaii, when they send the fleet out there in 1940, one of the things they find out very quickly is they don't have enough oilers. These are the tankers that are going to shuttle fuel from California to Hawaii to keep the fuel farm filled up. They're actually burning through fuel faster than they can replenish it. So Admiral Richardson, who gets the worst reputation in World War II, in my opinion, he, he literally acknowledges, I can't sustain my fleet here because number one, he doesn't have four million barrels of fuel. He only has half a million. The other three and a half, he can't touch. It's under a war reserve. And he's got seven small leftover World War I tankers to do this. They can carry about, those seven ships can carry maybe about 400,000 barrels of fuel. Well, he's ripping through 600,000 barrels of fuel a month. And so he's got problems. And, and so the Americans coming into World War II have a fuel problem with sustaining it. Now, they get alleviated by that by, by getting these fast tankers, these commercially modified vessels added to the fleet. They also get an advantage in that President Roosevelt sends the New Mexico-class battleships in Yorktown to the Atlantic. So that alleviates part of the fuel problem. But still, the U.S. is basically just feeding the fuel farm and logistics just enough to keep the Pacific fleet operational. And that's why I talk about this idea that if the Japanese decided to hit the fuel farm, it could have had an impact. Now, I don't think it would have been war-winning strategy, I because I don't think they would have been as successful as many people think they would be. Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons for that, some of which is that you know, as soon as you hit the first one, suddenly the battlefield, the airspace becomes full of thick black smoke. Two is they would have been trying to land at night, which Japanese, despite being absolutely amazing night fighters in terms of gunnery, where you know, nobody in the world, including them, had practiced any sort of night carrier landing, so that would have been an absolute disaster. Their ships were all running desperately out of fuel, and they probably would have had to abandon a bunch of them on their way back. And plus, at that point, everyone in Hawaii was alerted as to there's some sort of attack going on. It would have been a more costly attack, certainly the remnants of whatever uh, Hickam could get in the air would have been in the air. And then all the destroyers would have been primed, anti-aircraft would have been primed, and then you know, there were still two carriers somewhere out there. And if you send all of your planes out, there's a good chance that you get surprise attacked at that point by carriers that are looking for a Japanese strike group. And at that point, you have lost the one irreplaceable resource that if you were the Empire of Japan, you need to accomplish your other missions farther west in the Pacific. Yeah. You look at it, the fuel farm is divided into three different tank farms. And, you know, you only had, you know, in the first wave, 90 Kates, and you lost five of them in the the end of the torpedo run they were getting shot down left and right the very last run so maybe with 75 kates coming in but as you mentioned before any bombing attack on oil farms is notoriously bad if you look at palesti and all the strategic strikes throughout world war ii it's really hard because once you ignite a, a fuel farm on fire you, like you said you get smoke plus they're really very difficult to damage and those farm in particularly has these huge revetments around them so even 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 if i give the japanese the massive advantage that they're able to pull this off and even destroy half the fuel farm you know destroy two million out of four million barrels of fuel and they get back and they're able to maintain the Kidu Batai and get it back. Because again, their primary purpose is they need those carriers back because they got to finish the conquest. That's their primary mission. They got to go back and grab all this territory. But even if you lose two out of the four million barrels, you don't really hinder operations appreciably. You don't go reinforce Wake, which doesn't matter because you don't save Wake. You may not execute the early strike missions against the Gilberts and the Marshalls, 
but I don't think that really hinders you as much as people like to think. I think where it really starts manifesting itself is by about April, when maybe you don't pull off the raid on Tokyo with the Doolittle Raiders. Maybe you don't send the four carriers down to the Coral Sea. Maybe that's the one area, I think, that you pull back on. You don't have two carriers down in the Coral Sea with two more coming in. But again, don't think it's a strategic victory for the Japanese because what the Americans would have been doing is rebuilding the tank farm. They would have had tankers in Pearl Harbor sitting there holding fuel, just would have slowed things up slightly. Don't think it's a war-winning strategy for the Japanese because what the Americans wind up doing is they wind up with six fast oilers in the Pacific that are going to be used to shuttle fuel from the West Coast to the base and support the carriers. And then about 25 commercial tankers that come from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so I think you just slow down. Maybe you delay Guadalcanal a few months, but you sure don't stop midway because it's close proximity to Hawaii. Right. And there's, you know, maybe a minor tactical advantage, you know, taking Pearl Harbor from already extremely, extremely successful to an absolute success. But uh, I mean, you know, really what it comes down to is there's no such thing as a strategic victory for Japan. I mean, there is no conceivable it would have caused a slight reshuffling of resources, perhaps and maybe a few fewer ships would have got built, a few more resources would have been shifted from the Atlantic to the Pacific. In the meantime, you know, a couple of tankers would have been reprioritized. But I mean, there was no scenario in which Japan won a military victory. Their only realistic hope in retrospect was to inflict enough damage on the political willpower of the United States to fight them that the United States decided not to, and that was not in the cards after Pearl Harbor. So, Yeah, I seriously doubt that the Japanese pilots would have been satisfied going after oil tanks. I mean, look at the second wave. Look how the second wave got distracted by Nevada sailing down. I mean, those valves were supposed to be hitting the Navy yard. They were supposed to be hitting the cruisers and destroyers in and about, and instead they piled on Nevada and a few other ships. So, you know, the concept that they're going to sit there and bomb oil tanks and, and hit them. I just don't see, especially when you had Neosho sitting there in the middle of battleship row and it didn't even get a torpedo. It didn't get a bomb. I mean, it straddled between California, Oklahoma, and Maryland, loaded to the gills with fuel and never hit. Matter of fact, it gets underway right behind Nevada and sails over to Mary Point, past the Navy Yard, and never gets a lick of attention. So don't see the Japanese understanding, which again is the irony of this all. Because the entire war is being driven by fuel, but on a tactical level at Pearl Harbor, the Japanese are not looking at the fuel. They're not looking at the Navy Yard. Navy Yard's really hard to hit. The idea of hitting a dry dock with a torpedo is almost impossible. But the Japanese are focusing on what they can hit, and that's the, that's the Air Force, and that is the Navy assets right there in Pearl Harbor. So I want to back up for the audience. I talked a lot about this during the World War II episodes that I did, but the Japanese impetus for World War II was they were embroiled in China. The army had millions of men in China, and the conquest was stalled, more or less from lack of resources. They couldn't push deep beyond the coastal areas, or they're having a lot of trouble doing that. And so they needed more resources. And you know, conveniently, the European powers had been uh, bashing each other into oblivion. Germany had just conquered France, and so there were a bunch of uh, French colonies floating around for the taking down in Indochina. The Dutch, similar situation, uh, all basically Indonesia, you know, the Dutch East Indies, extremely resource rich. And the British certainly didn't have a lot of resources to throw in the area if you want to include them. So all of Malaysia, going all the way over to India if you really want it, Singapore. And those would have been easy pickings. And certainly the Japanese could have done that. But it was unacceptable that the United States still owned the Philippines. And that meant that the United States still could 
in the Philippines, if you look at a map, right, is located right in between all those great resource areas that I just described into China, the Dutch East Indies, Malaysia, Southeast Asia, and Japan. And so the United States still at any time could have cut off that line of supply. And so that meant that the Japanese had to take the Philippines in order to be resource secure, which meant that they had to go to war with the one power that was big and not distracted and not conquered, which was the United States. But they couldn't do that. They were smart enough to know that they could not go toe-to-toe against the United States. And so they had to strike first. And they had to strike what was a crippling blow and then have some sort of strategy to win the war in China quickly and then be able to defend the perimeter. And that is what necessitated Pearl Harbor. And that is what the Japanese war strategy was. A lot of people in the Japanese government realized that this was a stupid strategy and that it was a, it was a strategy that had a lot of inherent flaws, but it was nonetheless decided through a chain of events that, uh, you know, is all understandable, but ultimately, you know, very foolhardy where you risk everything, you risk total loss for victory in China, where, where they definitely could have eked out and come to a still very advantageous position in China without all those resources, but it was a, we will gamble everything and they gambled badly. They did. And you know, your scenario there is a really good one because it's applicable to today. You look at what Japan was doing to China. They were putting a ring around China. They were cutting China off from the outside. They'd seized the ports. They'd gone into Northern Indochina to cut off the route coming from Haiphong through Hanoi into Southern China. They leveraged the British to cut the Burma road. Politically, at first, later militarily, they cut it. And the idea that Japan could go in and take, for example, the Dutch East Indies, the way they took French Indochina with no reaction, was it's always the great what if. You know, what if they went in and just did that in December of 41, not attack the US? But then their entire supply line would have been, you know, astride of the Philippines. And the fact that the US was pouring equipment into the Philippines. I mean, you look at the reinforcement column convoys that were coming in, the B-17s, the P-40s, the submarines. I mean, more American submarines are in the Philippines than anywhere else. And, and, and the, the Air fact- Force, you know, MacArthur was demanding and he got right. the bulk of the newest and best, the B-17s, the P-45s, right? They were all yep. flowing into the Philippines because MacArthur yep. was convinced that he could defend it. But the Japanese didn't know that to them. The B-17s are absolutely an offensive force, despite the fact that the United States was not thinking of them in a offensive manner. It was purely a defensive manner. But to the Japanese, they correctly intuited that those should and were capable of offensive missions, a.k.a. taking out their ports in the area and doing long-range attack on their shipping. And that's the irony, again, that, you know, MacArthur is talking about by April of 42, he's going to have enough forces there to bring around the Philippines, interdict all this trade. And and Japan never seems to apply that back to the United States. One of the things that's that's not commonly known, for example, is that when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, one of the things they do is they send their I-boats, their, their submarines out on an offensive. Their I-boats are always the vanguard of their fleet. Wherever the fleet goes, the I-boats go. And so when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, they send their I-boats in and around Hawaii, and they actually send them to the West Coast. And there is a limited submarine offensive there. You see the sinking of ships in December of 41 into January of 42. Matter of fact, on December 17th, the 14th Naval District, which is Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, will send out six commercial vessels that have been held in Honolulu since the attack. Three of the six are going to be sunk. And, you know, there's a, there's all of a sudden a concern that the Japanese are going to interdict supplies coming from the West Coast to Hawaii. It forces the 14th Naval District, it forces Admiral Pai at the time, later on Nimitz, to devote a lot of resources to convoys from the West Coast to 
Hawaii because there's a perception that the Japanese are going to attack the supply line. And what we know is the Japanese did attack the supply line briefly, but then they pulled the subs back to go follow the fleet. A month later, they should, the German U-boat show up off the East Coast. And to many people, this looks like a coordinated offensive. This looks like Japanese I-boats on the West Coast, German U-boats on the East Coast. They're going after our supply lines, but we know the Japanese never quite see it that way. They put their submarines out in front of the fleet, very effective off Guadalcanal, for example, hitting the Saratoga, sinking Wasp, hitting the Chester, sinking Juno. I mean, they're sinking ships left and right. They're very effective Japanese submarines. But they're not thinking strategically, which, again, is hard to fathom because the entire purpose of the war is strategic for Japan for resources. Absolutely. And for Japan, they do manage to capture all these resources, right? They do go capture almost effortlessly. And this just brilliant six-month-long offensive before Midway, just probably the single best military offensive, certainly of World War II, but possibly ever in terms of a naval offensive. It just runs perfectly, without literally without loss. They lose zero ships, and they capture all of the Western Pacific from the Dutch, from the United States, from the British, from the French, from the Australians. It was just utterly brilliant. But then they have no plan whatsoever to defend their own supply lines, which was the whole point, was to get the supplies. They have no plan to defend that against the United States, and we absolutely destroy their merchant fleet to the point where it seriously impacts their ability to wage war. And as the war goes on, we starve them to death. Think in, if you look at spring 42, the Japanese make two crucial errors, I think, that are going to be really the things that un undercome. And this is before we get to Midway. I mean, this is not even Midway. So one of the first is you follow Kidu Butai from Pearl Harbor. It ranges around the Pacific. It's helping grab Rabaul. It's attacking Darwin. It's in the Dutch East Indies. But then in April of 42, they raid out into the Indian Ocean, which I think is really crucial. No one looks at Operation C very well, and they really should, because this attack forces, basically, the British fleet retires to the East Coast of Africa. It severs the supply line to Australia. It's never understood enough. The Australians are screaming bloody murder to Churchill that they need their troops back. They need to defend Australia. I know the Japanese are not planning to invade Australia, but again, the Australians, the Australians don't, know don't know that. Right. And the Australian, Australian prime minister floats the idea of shifting his country's primary allegiance from Britain to the United States, which yep. Churchill is obviously not a fan of. And that necessitates a whole bunch of strategic considerations for the United States throughout the war. Right. And Australia doesn't have oil. They got food. They're fine on food, but they don't have oil. They don't have ammunition. And now all of a sudden that that supply line that where they were getting oil from the British East Indies and even from British Persian Gulf is cut. So so that's effective. Number one. Number two, it's not just Coral Sea. It's not just Port Moresby and Tulagi where the Japanese suffer a setback because the next plan was going to get them astride the main supply line to Australia, grabbing New Caledonia, Samoa, and Fiji. The Americans had already decided to reinforce. They'd already decided to dispatch two divisions to Australia. That alleviates the two Australian divisions coming back from North Africa. But if the Japanese had been successful, if they had diverted their resources, not to Midway, but to a South Pacific offensive, grab Port Moresby, grab Tulagi, and then grab Samoa, Fiji, and New Caledonia, which wouldn't have been easy because the Americans and the Allies were reinforcing them. 
But that would have been a big change, in my opinion, because now it's Australia doesn't fall out of the war, but it's much more difficult to sustain Australia because now you get a sail from the West Coast or Panama to Bora Bora and Tahiti refuel, sail all the way down to New Zealand and then to Australia. This would have would have pulled the Australian troops out of North Africa without a doubt. It would have seen the withdrawal of the New Zealand troops out, which are going to fight later on in Italy, for example. And it would have curtailed any sort of offensive ability. The Americans and the Australians would have had to be defending that supply line to maybe the extent that, you know, the, the major decisive naval battle isn't fought at Midway, but it's fought at Samoa or Fiji or one of these other islands where maybe you nullify the American advantage being so close to Pearl Harbor, having the intelligence that aids you, and the decisive battle happens in the South Pacific, which again, all of it is driven by logistics because to sustain Australia, you need to keep that supply line open. And so circling back to oil logistics, so Pearl Harbor is effectively a gas station for the United States Navy. It is the first big gas depot because there are no oil wells in Hawaii. And there's no oil refinery in Hawaii. That's all coming from California, right? Bunch of oil refineries in the Los Angeles, well, Long Beach. California and the Gulf Coast, because there's actually not enough oil being produced in California because those refineries had been curtailed because of the Great Depression. So actually you're pulling oil out through the Panama Canal. There you go. So Pearl Harbor is this intermediate stop, you know, collection point for oil for the Central Pacific offensive. But even when the Japanese do not hit those fuel farms, oil and fuel, that is still an absolutely war-limiting concern. Yeah, I mean, the Americans face a big quandary. So again, you know, they're in a situation where they've got these seven tankers, these oilers, which are all World War I, very small, very slow, but then just started to bring in these new fast oilers. The U.S., as part of a program called the Merchant Marine Act of 1936, started building these new fast oilers. And these ships are built with the military in mind. They're given money so that they can have twin screws, higher speeds, more capacity. And almost as soon as these ships start coming down the ways, the Navy starts grabbing them. And they're being used for two missions. Number one, to run fuel from the West Coast to Hawaii, but also to refuel the fast carriers when they're at sea. If you look at fast carriers and look at the fast carrier task force, which we all know about early in World War II is running around, the one key component of them besides the carrier is the fast oiler that's running along with them. 18 knots, 150,000 barrels of oil. They are absolutely essential because without them, you know, we all know the story that Admiral Halsey heads out to Wake Island, drops off VMF 211, which is going to fight those early battles at Wake Island. And Halsey is slow getting back to Pearl Harbor. He's late. He's a day late getting in. He's supposed to be in already by December 7th. He's a day late. And the reason he's late is because when he goes out there, he doesn't have an oiler. He's got to refuel his destroyers from his heavier ships, the carrier and the heavy cruisers. It's a really bad operation because of the way they do it at the time. The technology is really rudimentary. And so Halsey is slow in refueling his destroyers. It slows him up and he doesn't get into Pearl Harbor on time. Plus, by the time he does get into Pearl Harbor, his destroyers are down to 20% fuel. His cruisers are at 30%, his carriers at 50%. And what that does is identifies the range of a carrier task force. It's about 2000 miles. You can range about 2000 miles out at about 2000 miles. You got to turn around and come back. Anything more than that, you can't do. You're going to need an oiler with them. 
And so what happens is in the early part, December of 41 to about February of 42, the U.S. is really faced with a quandary. Do we send out these fast carrier task forces with the fast oilers or do we focus on replenishing the fuel? Because one of the things the U.S. Navy finds out very quickly is, man, we underestimated how much fuel we're burning. They envisioned, you know, Pearl Harbor, they had four, uh, uh, four million barrels of fuel. They were burning monthly about 400,000 barrels of fuel. That's about 10% of the fuel farm they were burning monthly. In the first nine days after Pearl Harbor, they burned 750,000 barrels of fuel. So they burned almost 20% of the fuel farm in nine days. And is that That's just because be all the ships are patrolling for a possible second Japanese attack or something like that? All the planes are in the air. They're all going blank speed, burning an exponential amount of fuel. It's because no one is sailing at economical speed anymore. No one's sailing at 12 to 15 knots because 12 to 15 knots gets you torpedoed. You've got to go faster. So they're steaming at least 20 knots. Carriers are launching aircraft like crazy, which means they got to get up to speed. And so the destroyers, everyone's got to be up to speed. And so they're burning everything more. I did an analysis when Lexington's task force goes to raid lay March of 1942 on the run in to lay that task force, which is Lexington, three or four cruisers, nine or 10 destroyers. I forget how many are in there. They're, they're burning about 6,000 barrels a day of oil on the way out. When they're running to get out of there, they're burning 24,000 barrels. They're burning four times their normal capacity to get out because they're at full speed running out. They do not want to get caught by the Japanese on the way out. And so all the pre-war estimates, which sat there and said, here's our fuel consumption, here's our curves, they're out the window. And so one of the things the Americans have to learn in a lot of these early raids is how to stretch the legs of the carriers. How do you do this? And one of the things like, for example, with Halsey, Halsey makes me laugh because Halsey continually runs out of fuel. He's always pushing his task force to the limit to the point that he sucks dry the oiler that's with him and Nimitz has to continually send out another one to get him back or else he's going to run out of fuel. As the war progresses, what is the interplay between the military and the civilian merchant community, which you know, has to effectively fill the gap because the, the Navy in the interwar years did not have the money or the foresight, some combination thereof to build a sufficient military sea lift command style oiler fleet? Sure. So what happens is Nimitz in January of 42 goes to Admiral King and says, listen, I, I need support. I need commercial tankers. He allocates him about 20 tankers from what's going to become known as the Warshipping Administration created in February of 42. And the Warshipping Administration job is to shuttle fuel from the United States to wherever Admiral Nimitz needs it, largely Pearl Harbor at this time. So they start running these tankers to them. And these commercial tankers are absolutely essential. There's a point in April of 1942 when Lexington and Yorktown are down in Coral Sea, Enterprise and Hornet are coming back from the Doolittle Raid heading the Coral Sea. There is about nine commercial tankers in Pearl Harbor dumping just about 750,000 barrels of fuel in the fuel farm. They're running these massive tanker convoys. When Nimitz goes to Guadalcanal in August of 42, one of the things that plagues Admiral Fletcher, who is notorious for, I would say, erroneously being labeled as a problem because of fueling, it's not. Fletcher is actually well-versed in this. He arrives off Guadalcanal on August 7th with his ships half-filled because 
Admiral Gormley and most importantly, Admiral Callahan, who is the chief of staff to Admiral Gormley, failed to coordinate tankers to replenish his oilers. Uh, tankers are the commercial oilers of the Navy version of tankers to replenish them. That's why Fletcher has to withdraw. What happens is it becomes very clear that there needed to be a handoff. So starting in September of 42, as commercial tankers come out to the South Pacific, they're outfitted so that they can receive fuel rigs from oilers. They can actually replenish U.S. Navy oilers at sea. So envision this, you have your task force up forward, the Navy oiler replenishes that task force when that Navy oiler gets empty, instead of having to run all the way back to port, either Numea in New Caledonia or worse, all the way back to Pearl Harbor, what they do is they run to a commercial tanker. That tanker could be in a lagoon somewhere, or it can be at sea. It can fill it up by receiving those rigs, and now you can keep that Navy task force at sea. That's what changes everything for Task Force 5838, starting in 1943. That that's the fast carrier movement across the Pacific. The, you know, the when the big blue navy shows up, it is being trailed by a commercial fleet of tankers. There is a zero percent chance that we could do that today because that commercial fleet does not exist. And furthermore, we could not in the United States build that fleet today because we have utterly immiserated our commercial shipbuilding industry. Yeah. The reason you have the fast oilers is because you were building these ships under the Merchant Marine Act of 36. The situation is, is, is worse than that because we have basically executed the third wave against Pearl Harbor because we're defueling what is the Red Hill facility. So where we had 4 million barrels of oil in 1943, Everybody realized these tanks above ground is a bad idea. So they the Japanese the could have attacked them. And so we need to right. put them underground, right? So they decided to put them underground. So they built this 6 million gallon facility underground called Red Hill in 1943. But due to mismanagement and, and failure to inspect these tanks, they leaked into the water system and therefore they're being defueled. And what the U.S. now is doing is literally defueling Red Hill. They're moving some of the fuel to Barber's Point which is the southwestern corner of Oahu in a series of above ground tanks. We're going once again to above ground tanks, which are vulnerable. And we're doing what's called distributed logistics, where we're putting fuel into Guam, the Philippines, and Singapore, all of which, by the way, is within missile range of the Chinese. And then we're going to use some commercial tankers. We're in the process of trying to bring tankers back into the U.S. fleet, but it's very slow. Uh, there was a study done a few years ago where they identified the need for about 86 commercial tankers, and I think we were short by 60 of them. So they just initiated what's called a tanker security program where they reflagged in 10 tankers, but there's no guarantee those 10 stay in the U.S. fleet. Huh. Yeah, so Red Hill... Very mixed feelings on Red Hill, right? So, A, it is a huge strategic loss for the United States Navy. We no longer have that big gas station at Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah, but on the other hand, you talked about the, the mismanagement. Red Hill was sitting right above the Oahu Aquifer, about 100 feet above that, and some relatively small number of people got sick as there was a, some contamination, and that was cover-up or mismanagement. Those people were not alerted in time. And then at that point, it became a political issue, and, and the political forces dictated that Red Hill be defueled and, you know, which a lot of people have been pushing for for a long time. And I think a lot sometimes about if we are going to look back on this in 
X number of years should we fight another war in the Pacific and think uh, we should have done something else. <laughs> I, you know, Chase, I've seen this. I live in North Carolina by Camp Lejeune, which has water uh, issues because uh-huh. of contamination. So, I mean, DOD and infrastructure is goes hand in hand with this. But when you look at the situation, I mean, literally what they're doing is defueling Red Hill. They're putting the fuel into a tanker, sailing it a grand total of 52 miles to Barber's Point, anchoring it, hooking it up to an underwater fuel line, pumping the fuel under the Pacific ashore to Barber's Point to these new tanks they just built above ground tanks, which are extremely vulnerable. You know, and it's nowhere near enough. And and like you said, one of the big faults, I would argue right now is, you know, we don't have those commercial tankers to fill in behind the Navy oilers and we don't have the fuel farm. So literally we're going to have to do in a scenario here is if we're staging a U.S. fleet, you know, in a conflict against a potential China near the first or second island chain, Okinawa or Guam. Navy oilers or MSC oilers, in this case, military sealift command oilers, are going to have to be running back to Barber's Point in Hawaii, which is a limited amount of fuel, or all the way back to the West Coast to go refuel. So the other thing we found out early in World War II was the vulnerability of these logistics ships. When Lexington tried to raid Wake Island, for example, its oiler, the Neches, was sunk by I-72, a Japanese I-boat, because it was unescorted. After they lost Neches, Admiral Nimitz decreed all tankers and, and logistics ships have to be escorted because we can't take the chance of losing the, these again. We lost Neosho in April of 42 down at the Coral Sea. And so Nimitz became absolutely you know, nervous. He's going to lose his vital logistics ships. We do not have the ships right now to escort these ships around. Not only that, MSE oilers are unarmed, completely unarmed. They don't, they don't even have point defense weapons. So, you know, don't seem to be looking and learning the lessons of logistics that we learned very, very severely in World War II. So a lot of this comes down to the fact that the United States has higher labor costs, has higher regulatory burdens in terms of all sorts of things, uh, ranging from worker safety, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes U.S. shipping inherently more expensive. And so simultaneously, throughout most of history, Britain, other major maritime powers have decreed that if a ship wants to come dock in Britain or the United States, as it was for a long time, it has to be flagged of our country and it has to be built in our country. It has to be crewed by people of our country. And there are lots of exceptions, but that kept alive a domestic shipbuilding industry. And we have decided not to do that with the limited exception of the Jones Act. And that has meant that trade has gotten cheaper to a degree, right? Shaved, uh, you know, percent, two, three percent, whatever, off of the cost of shipping stuff around the world because uh, you, know, you can have a crew of uh, a very competent, not insulting them in any way, but Filipino or, you know, flag convenience ship and crew. But that has deprived two generations now of the U.S. Merchant Marine of you know, that inherent skill base. It exists, but it's small. And then additionally, it is very expensive to build warships because we do not have a commercial shipbuilding industry. And... And the other big players, commercial shipbuilding today, are uh, Japan, South Korea, which are our allies. So that's good. But the big story over the past 15 years is that China has absolutely dumped specifically entry subsidies into hundreds of shipbuilding firms. And they have been supremely inefficient. But when you're subsidized out the wazoo, you can build it. And they have gotten to the point where they have almost half of the worldwide shipbuilding capacity. And that has lots of good spillover effects for them militarily. But that also means that they have a big available fleet of, of commercial ships that they can utilize in the event of war, whether that be 
spoilers, whether that be row rows, roll on, roll off, fairies, quote unquote, right? That have definitely a dual military purpose. And yeah, I don't think that that is a, uh, that was not an accident that that happened. No, I mean, I, I think China has swallowed Mahan full bore. You know, if you look at what Mahan's writing, he, the reason he talks about Britain being the dominant sea power isn't just because it had a large navy. It's because it had that large commercial merchant marine that went hand in hand. It's symbiotic. You know, they, he understood that it's complementary. You build the Royal Navy in those same shipyards where you build the British merchant marine. And if you look at China, Japan and Korea today, they do the same thing. You build right alongside container ships and tankers and LNG carriers, frigates, submarines, cruisers, and the, in the Chinese case, aircraft carriers. That's what you see. You see that, but in the United States, it's much different. We bifurcated. We, after World War II, the U.S. made this conscious decision that we're not going to support the merchant marine as much. We supported the creation of those open registries, Liberia, Panama, the Marshall Islands. We helped every other country on the planet rebuild their merchant marine. The Ship Sales Act of 1946 repopulated the Allied merchant marines with World War II ships built in the U.S. And the U.S., basically in the 1980s in particular, turned its back, ended the subsidy program that was really keeping U.S. shipping competitive with foreign shipping. You go back to talk about China there, you know, from 2010 to 2018, there's a report written by CSIS called Hidden Harbors. They identify that China provided $132 billion in subsidies from 2010 to 2018. That same period, the U.S. Maritime is that, Administration... Is that is that direct subsidies or does that include indirect as well? Direct subsidies, $132 billion in cash. That's what and, they could find. Right. And then include all the indirect subsidies in terms of, you know, just think about steel, right? We know that steel yep. is massively subsidized by Chinese government. Yep. Lots of state-owned firms produce excess capacity as, you know, quasi-jobs program, industrial oh, yeah. policy. And then who buys that below market price steel? Oh, you know, Chinese shipbuilder. There you go. Yep. Their wages are reduced. $132 billion in the same period, 2010 to 2018, the U.S. Maritime Administration had a grand total under their Title 11 shipbuilding loan program of 77, not billion, but million dollars. So a fraction of a percentage of the amount the U.S. is spending on that. You can't compete with that. That's why China is building 260 times what we're building in terms of tonnage. And if you look, yeah, you know, the U.S. is still the biggest because we got 100,000 ton aircraft carriers. But China is putting out more, look at the most recent report from the DOD on China, and you'll see their scale of shipbuilding is increasing, not decreasing in terms of naval and commercial vessels. Right. The 2023 China Military Power Report, absolutely great. I have been kicking around the idea of doing a podcast on that. But by 2030, the DOD is predicting that China will have a fleet of 435 ships, and that is a pace that we absolutely cannot match. And then this is going from memory, so I may be off by a number or two, but in the past year, in year 2022, the Chinese pumped out 20 ships, which is compared to eight of ours that we commissioned in 2022. And of those eight, five were freaking LCSs, which are approximately zero use in the event of a great power conflict. And so the Chinese produced 20, we produced two Arleigh Burks, one Virginia class, and five LCSs. So um, yeah, we lose. And, and China is doing what nations would do to become a blue water Navy. A lot of criticism against China. It's not a blue water Navy. It's a green water Navy. It doesn't go out. Well, you know, they 
the 45th escort group just took up station in the Gulf of Aden. So even though it's small, a destroyer, a frigate and, and a supply ship, they're learning how to keep a force at sea for a long period of time. Their escort groups, when they get relieved in East Africa, will undergo voyages. The, the 44th group has just sailed around Africa through the Mediterranean, back through the Suez. It's in the Persian Gulf right now. And China doesn't have to deploy. You know, Japan was not a global navy. It was a Pacific navy. It didn't go to the Atlantic. It didn't go to the Mediterranean, but we didn't undercut Japan's navy. It's not like, well, it's a Pacific navy. Therefore, we don't have to worry about it. Right. Uh, I think I think we do. I don't know why we keep wanting to diminish the level of the Chinese Navy, because, yeah, they have problems that they're hiding from us that we don't see more than likely. There's probably a lot of issues there. They are not fully up on their aircraft carrier operations, but they're moving very quickly toward it. It's definitely a pacing threat we're not keeping pace with. Right. And so going back to the logistics aspects, what what is the U.S.'s current position in terms of our logistics for right now? Current new hot war, you know, we'll call it like it is. It's going to be between the United States and China. It's going to be over more than likely Taiwan. Uh, what are we looking at in terms of logistics? So obviously the big issue is the shutting down of Red Hill. I think that's absolutely key right now. In terms of logistics vessels, on a tactical side, no one beats our logistics ships. If you look at Kaiser-class oilers, the new Lewis-class oilers, we have the biggest logistics vessels out there. We have a way to sustain our vessels better than anybody else. Now, we have some gaps in that. We can't, for example, reload VLS. So that means when a ship fires off its VLS, in the case of the Kearney and the Red Sea, and those How do you, vertical launch systems, those are missiles. Destroyers have either 90 or 96, depending on their flight, and then the cruisers have 122. And those are various types, but you know, it can be surface to air or surface to surface. And we can even actually shoot out some torpedoes as well. We can fill those with uh, some interesting stuff. And uh, that is the primary armament of our non-carrier ships. Yeah. So, I mean, on that level, tactically, we're great. Of course, the ships are unarmed because they're manned by civilian crews. So 20% of the entire U.S. Navy's 300-ship Navy is crewed by merchant mariners. And there's a big problem with that because crewing is a big issue right now, trying to get crews on the vessels to entice mariners to go take that life is very difficult. We're seeing that issue manifest itself. The British are seeing the same thing with the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. I think the other area you have is bases around the world. We have, If you look at the wars we have fought since World War II, we have fought close to bases. Korea, we had Japan. Vietnam, we had the Philippines. If you look at uh, the Middle East, we had Bahrain and Oman. What we don't have is really practice sustaining logistics over long distances. We didn't do that in the Cold War. We didn't have to do the Battle of the Atlantic Part Three. The question is, do we have the logistics? And as you mentioned before, we don't have the commercial merchant marine to do it. We had that same situation prior to World War One, but we had a large coastal fleet. Well, we don't even have the large coastal fleet anymore, which means we're either going to have to build ships very quickly, but that still doesn't alleviate the crew situation. So I think one of our big issues we have got to address is the logistics issue. Is like, how do we do prolonged logistics over a long distance? And the only way to fix that is by increasing the size of the ships available and to establish more of a footprint around the world. But as we're seeing right now in conflicts like Russia-Ukraine, where you have fixed facilities in Sevastopol, in Kerch, in Novorosskaya, 
you're seeing that when you put a ship in a dry dock, that doesn't mean it's Pretty safe vulnerable. anymore. Yeah, it's vulnerable. And so you've got to be able to adapt and move. What made World War II in the Pacific really unique was we adapted this idea of a forward floating base. We can move tankers into forward lagoons. We can underway replenish at sea and sustain the fleet. We were doing a lot to keep the fleet at sea for long periods of time. We don't have that ability anymore, I think, to really keep a unit at sea for a long period of time if it's consuming its fuel and ammunition at a very large rate. So to play the devil's advocate, what's stopping us in a, another hot war in the Pacific from simply buying the ships that we need, right? There are lots of people in the world who are willing to put themselves in danger for a little bit of money. And we can simply put out, you know, the United States government is willing to pay top dollar for the logistic ships we need, right? The, the oilers, the tankers, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, is there a law of war prohibition on this? What's the argument against that? I think you can't, I think that would be a strategy you have to be thinking about, you know, uh, right now, right now, the Philippines is an ally of us, but you know, we've seen the Philippines mm -hmm. go left and right on this. So what stops you from just getting a Marshall Island flag vessel with a Philippine crew out there and hauling oil sounds great until China leverages Philippines and tells Philippines, if any of their mariners are found to be involved in this, they're going to put sanctions against them. And so what that means is we don't have a secure route. The Americans with American ships gives you a secure route as a superpower. You're talking about fighting a war with kind of one arm behind your back. You know, what? how would the British have fought Napoleon and, and World War I and World War II without their merchant marine behind them if they had to rely on it? We did that in World War One. We stole the German merchant marine that was in our ports. We used it to help transport the American Expeditionary Force. When that wasn't enough, we stole the Dutch merchant marine that was in our ports. But what we found out was it was really hard to crew them. It was really hard to sustain them and keep them operational because we didn't have a lot of background on the ships. I think you can band-aid it with using open flag registries and, and other crews, but we need to be having that dialogue with big shipping companies. We're, I don't know if we're talking to Maersk and ONE and Evergreen in Taiwan or HMM in Korea. Those are the companies we need to be having dialogues with to ensure that we can make agreements with them that their ships would be available to us. We know we have allies in Korea and Taiwan and Japan, but that doesn't mean they're commercial companies are going to come to play as we're seeing in Russia, Ukraine, where commercial companies are sanctioning Russia, for example. Yeah. The war can shake out a lot of different ways. And every one of our countries that we consider allies now, we may or may not consider allies after the fact that they don't come in our hour of need. An alliance is a piece of paper that two people have to honor when the bill comes due. And it's far from clear to me. Right. And we've seen that happen before. I mean, there have been instances where our allies weren't there. It's not that they were against us, but they said, we're not going to support you in this endeavor. And we like to think that should it be a China-Taiwan scenario that Korea and Japan will be involved, but Korea's got to worry about North Korea. Japan has other issues associated with it. So in, even in a, in a conflict like that, you have to look upon yourself. You know, If you're going to be the number one Navy in the world, which is what the U.S. talks about, that we're the number one naval power in the world. Are you really the number one naval power in the world when your merchant marine is number 21 
and China is the number two naval power in the world, and their merchant marine is number two in the world. Who's a better proponent of sea power in that scenario, the U.S. at one in 21 or China at number two in both? Isn't China number one in merchant marine at this point? No, no. It, well, in terms of registry, it's actually Liberia right now, then Panama, <laughs> and then if you combine it, it, China, I guess I was counting you know, shipbuilding tons in, right. you know, okay. Yeah, China's number one in shipbuilding, 44%, okay. I think, by the latest. Uh, yeah, 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 just under half, right? Um, yeah, and uh, so you said 260, some other numbers I did. I, I ran the math a while ago. I was at uh, like 225, depends on, I think, exactly which numbers you pull, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, regardless, a stunning discrepancy. So, um, you know, you're Secretary of Transportation. You get a big infrastructure budget. What do you do? How do you solve this problem? I, I think a couple of things. I think, number one, you have to start reforming. You have to start, you know, when, when the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, what's known as the Jones Act, was passed, it was a holistic act. It looked at domestic shipping. It looked at coastal. It looked at shipbuilding, looked at international trade. It looked at subsidies. It looked at everything, really did. And I think we got to do a couple of things right from the very beginning. One of the first things I'd want to do is get shipbuilding going again, which is going to take a government program. And I don't mean just dumping money into a shipyard. What I'm talking about is changing the way we finance ships. You know, Wall Street's investing huge amount of monies in China shipping because they're making profits, because it's more profitable to do that. We need to encourage financing in our ships. We need to ensure that there's cargo for our ships. No one builds a ship just to have a ship. As much as we love looking at ships, no one's going to build one just to have one. You got to ensure that there's cargo. That means things like cargo preference that means to ensure that there's contracts for them to build them and we need to offset the potential downside of a ship what an owner doesn't want to do is have a ship in 10 years from now run out of a place to use it so they need to be able to have the downside and i think we can do that by guaranteeing we would take the ship put it in the reserve fleet if for some reason it can't be used so i think Elements like that need to be looked at. There's a lot we can learn from history. There's a lot we can learn by examining what other countries are doing. What's Japan doing? Japan, you know, is building a navy. They have a, a large domestic merchant marine. What are they doing to encourage shipbuilding in their country? What's Korea doing? And I think if I was Secretary of Transportation or the Maritime Administrator, I'd be doing studies that are looking at that. That's what you saw that was done in 1937, right after the passage of the Merchant Marine Act of 1936. This is what these countries are doing. Here's what we should do. And I think that's what needs to be done. Yeah, <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> um, yep, I totally agree. This has been Sal Mercogliano. He is the creator extraordinaire behind the YouTube channel and prolific Twitter poster for what's going on with shipping. I highly recommend it if you've been interested in this talk. He puts out a huge amount of really great content. I'm going to put a link in the show description here. Thank you very much, Sal. I thought this was a, a really interesting topic that I you know, certainly could not have talked nearly as authoritatively on by myself. I appreciate it, Chase, and I love your podcast. So thanks for having <laughs> me on. Thanks, Sal. All right, everyone. That's all. Until next time, fair winds and following seas. As always, you can email me, usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And again, that'll be in the show notes. Until next time, wish you well. Ta-da. <laughs>